So um, there's an example given in the suttas of a blind person who has been told that they have a clean white cloth in their hands and then their vision is restored and they see that what they've been given is actually an old dirty greasy uh, rag essentially and they're disappointed about that in fact they might even be angry about being deceived and the buddha likens this situation of to to what happens to a meditator when they begin to understand the five aggregates so these are the elements of experience the five aggregates are the elements of experience that we tend to take delight in and we tend to identify with i'll name them in a moment but let me finish the part about the story so we've been told that these things these five aggregates are beautiful are enjoyable are satisfying reliable but then we come to see them as they actually are which is impermanent and unreliable not very satisfying not as wonderful as we first thought so just to name these five aggregates they are form feeling perception mental formations or volitional formations and consciousness and we very easily think of these things as me myself and mine so um, for example we think that our body is beautiful or ugly in some way and that maybe we think it's desirable or sexy or strong and healthy um, maybe my body says something about who I am you know there's some effort invested there or maybe um, we don't like our body and so we think it says uh, something about us not being so good or so desirable just because of how our body is we also easily identify with our feelings how much we love certain people or animals in our life or certain activities this is an identification with feeling tone and then you know, our desire for those things becomes part of who we are. And then our, our mental formations, I'm just naming the ones that we really identify with, especially our views and our opinions. Um, you know, we feel that our views are very important and maybe even definitive of how things are or how we are. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of energy wrapped up in our relationship to these five aspects of experience but there can come a moment where we see through one or more of these if you will um, as you know simply qualities of experience that come and go change and shift under laws of their own not entirely under our control not so personal and not so desirable necessarily um, we also realize that there are pleasures that are deeper and more sublime than various sensual or mental qualities. So then we wonder when we have a moment like that of being seeing through, we wonder why we were so caught up. <laughs> why was that so important to me um, when suddenly it's, it's seen as not so important? 
we might even be a little miffed that we expended so much energy in one of these areas. I know I've expended a lot of energy around certain stories that I believe are true. And this is a relatively trivial example, but you know, something that where I believed something, somebody was doing something because of a certain reason. And so I had an opinion about the whole situation and what it said about that person and me and their, my relationship to that and what I needed to do. And then I found out that I was completely wrong. You know, it's like they actually, I don't know, they were sick that day. That's why they didn't show up, you know, something like that. And, it, and the whole story is just gone in an instant. And I think, wow, you know, how much suffering was expended in all of that mental effort. So, you know, we've all had experiences like that. So this, this seeing through experience, that moment where the bubble is popped, whether it's something trivial you know, about a, a situation or something major about our body or, um, or a, rela- a, you know, a deep relationship we have, that moment is called disenchantment or in Pali, Nibida, we're no longer enchanted. Um, so it's actually a positive thing. You know, there's this idea that when we were, uh, that we were sort of uh, had a spell cast on us. When we were enchanted, we were like the blind person. Um, we couldn't see for ourselves, and we had to trust somebody else that a cloth was clean and white. And so part of the aim of practice is to restore correct sight, if you will, so we can see for ourselves. We can see without enchantment how things are. So there are many, many examples of this in the texts. Um, And I think it's fairly easy to think of examples from our own practice, too. Would you say that there are things that you are simply less caught up in now than you used to be because of seeing more clearly and wisely? You could reflect for a moment if there's something like that in your life. I remember that early in my practice, I was in a phase of um, looking at a lot of recipes online and downloading them and trying them out. So I had to shop for them and, you know, do the actual cooking and cleanup. I had to eat them. You know, there was a lot of uh, energy going into all of this. And often I would have bought ingredients that I didn't completely use. You know, I had to buy a big jar of something that only required a quarter cup. And then I had to figure out how to use the rest of it. And, you know, just the little things like that that go along with an interest in cooking, right? Um, It was mostly, it was a lot of effort, mostly for the pleasure of having interesting flavors and trying out different techniques. You know, there's nothing unethical about that. And if it's something that you enjoy, that's totally fine. Um, But in my life, which was busy at the time, and also I was trying to make more space for practice at the time, uh, it didn't really make sense to be spending so much time on something like that. And so I... um, I had a moment where I saw that all of this effort was essentially going into sense pleasure. And I thought, why am I doing this? You know, what is the, what is the uh, kind of draw for something like that? And it wasn't that I, you know, as soon as I had that realization, I immediately stopped and that was it. I never did it again. It, it doesn't really, doesn't usually work like that. I guess it can, but it doesn't usually work like that. Instead, what happened was I had that moment and I continued um, kind of out of momentum or habit, but it it had less juice to it. You know, there was sort of less interest and less willingness um, over time. And then slowly, 
it kind of, you know, that behavior just didn't continue for much longer. It just faded out, became simpler, essentially became simpler. Of course, I still cook and eat, but it, um, it occupied a sort of less of my mental territory, let's say. It was a lighter process. Um, there's also an example in the suttas of a, um, of a woman who came to the Buddha with, um, the text says she had wet clothes and wet hair. And that is a, um, an indication in ancient Indian society of grieving. Uh, they would go and uh, immerse themselves in the river as part of kind of a purification uh, process as part of grieving. And it turned out that one of her grandchildren had died. And the, um, you know, the Buddha knew, though, that this woman was a dedicated practitioner. And so he decided to, to make even a situation like this into a Dharma teaching for her. And he said, um, he asked her if she would like to have as many grandchildren as there were people in the city. And she said, oh, yes, yes, I would. And he said, well, then, would you ever be without wet clothes and wet hair? And she said, you're right, um, enough with my wanting so many grandchildren. So, you know, she had the astute realization that it's very nice to have a lot of grandchildren. It's a lot of love and warmth, but then there's more chance that they'll die or something will happen to them or they'll be in distress or sick and she would suffer for that then. So she saw the trade-off. Um, I don't think she stopped loving her children and grandchildren, but maybe there was a little less edge on it after she realized the suffering that can come. Remember, she was an experienced practitioner, so the Buddha knew he could point towards something like this with her. So it's actually very good when we see through things that are not genuinely helpful for our path, such as habits that are not supportive of our practice, or even the way we've added extra onto things, you know, extra amounts of wanting that will lead to, um, to suffering later. You know, there's nothing wrong with uh, loving relationships, but if we have that attachment on there, that's what leads to the, to the real dukkha. So I hope this might give some interest and inspiration about disenchantment, about seeing through things. It's not the best word, uh, maybe, and you know, we don't really, really find the word disenchantment very appealing in our kind of everyday lexicon, but uh, we think it might be something undesirable, but it's actually the opposite. You know, it's the first moment of freedom. It's the first moment when we uh, see that something is not actually helpful for us, and we can start a process of seeing it differently and that can lead toward letting go. So I, um, so disenchantment is one key step along the path. It's a kind of a phase or a process that we go through. And this, um, this other way of seeing that it leads to is another key step along the path. So we have this moment where we see through, and then there's a process after that of slow letting go. And that's what I want to turn to now. Let's explore that process that follows disenchantment. So uh, it helps to know, maybe before we get into this, that disenchantment is possible when the mind is in, is most possible, let's say, when the mind is in a state of equanimity. So we have to have 
some degree of balance in the mind. Um, even if we're suffering at the moment and that's when we're able to see through, we have to have enough equanimity about the situation that we're able to step back and see that suffering there. There has to be some uh, distance in the mind. So basically the mind is without a strong amount of for and against. You know, it's a little bit balanced when we can see, and that's the, the case where we can see clearly like that. And so then we can experience this other way of seeing, which is called viraga in Pali. We have nibida of becoming disenchanted, and then there's viraga. And that word has two translations, um, both of which are accurate, and each of which offers some different uh, view into what's going on. So I want to go through, talk about both of them. One of them is dispassion. And remember that the original meaning of the word passion is suffering. So this is an older, um, older word in English. Now passion tends to have kind of a positive feeling of something that you're really interested in or excited about or devoted to, something like that. But passion, um, when these texts were first translated uh, over a hundred years ago, it meant suffering. You know, it meant something that we're gripped onto. Remember uh, the phrase, the passion of Christ. Um, that wasn't such a positive kind of thing. So uh, we're talking about with dispassion, a reduction of suffering, a reduction of kind of a compulsion or a gripping or being caught up with or entangled with something in a compulsive way. So dispassion is the uh, softening of that, which is related to the other translation of viraga, which is fading away. You'll see both of these in translations of Buddhist texts. You'll see dispassion and you'll see fading away. And this word um, raga, out of viraga, raga um, can mean uh, passion, desire or lust, essentially. And so viraga, v is a, a negator, so it can be non-passion. But raga also means the dye in clothing. So you know, raga makes this green, this shirt. So viraga is fading away. Like when you wash your clothes a lot of times and they look faded after some number of washings. That's what's going on in the mind. And I love this is, you know, this is also um, something that's going on in the mind is that as we see again and again that something is not really so exciting, not really so desirable, not really so satisfying, each time we're washing it through the mind, washing away our passion for it, letting it fade. So again, there can be an, a sense of, well, I don't want that. I want my life to be vivid and dynamic and exciting and filled with color. Why are you telling me everything's going to dull out? And you know, I throw out my t-shirts when they start looking like that. But um, again, this might be a misunderstanding. So I want to talk through, um, instead of thinking of this abstractly, and uh, we might think about the, let's, let's talk about the experience of viraga, and I'll point towards some things so that maybe you can um, start to identify this in your own experience. So when I realized that cooking was something I was caught up in, 
that created the conditions for me to just gradually have less interest in the complication of it. Um, there was no diminishment of joy in my life because I wasn't caught up in recipes and techniques and things like that. Uh, actually, uh, there was just kind of a peaceful settling out of that extra energy that I had around that activity. In fact, I probably became available for more joy because my mind was more relaxed. And there was an availability there that wasn't there before. So the fading away that characterizes viraga is often a gentle, easeful process that also brings ease and relief from the prior passion that we had, the prior compulsion. So we're not against our prior way. That's why I talked about not being for and against being a condition for having this process happen. It's not that we say, oh, that was bad. That was wrong what I was doing. Now I'm going to not do that. I'm going to do the opposite. You know, that's all a lot of still a lot of wrangling going on in the mind. Instead, there's just this kind of settling out. It's just not as interesting as it was before. Um, we're just letting it fade naturally. This also happens, by the way, naturally as children grow up. So like when you were five years old, you might have really liked a certain, I don't know, action figure or stuffed animal or doll or game. And it was really fun. It was so, um, you did it for hours and your parents wondered why you were so caught up in that. But that was your thing when you were five. And then when you got to six or seven, that wasn't the thing anymore. You know, you were on to the next thing, um, something else. Now, in that case, we've just replaced one with another maybe, but it wasn't like you had to be against that action figure or doll or game. You didn't think it was bad or, or wrong. You just found the next thing. You outgrew what you had before. And this is a lot of what Viraga is about also. There's a fading away of our, you know, caught upness and it feels like we're just moving on we're just moving into something else the mind is developing it's natural we don't stop that when we get to adulthood we keep going if we keep cultivating the mind like through meditation i think if you don't that can stop actually but uh, just like children will keep growing up adults can keep growing up too so i'd like to offer then that Viraga is kind of a middle way. Uh, it's we've, We're not for or against. We're not trying to get rid of something. Uh, there are appropriate times, of course, when we might make effort to uh, eliminate hindrances, for example, or the poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes it's very appropriate to take uh, deliberate action to not have so much of that in the mind. And there are also appropriate times to cultivate positive things like metta or samadhi or any of the paramis, for example. That's also very good. Um, but we're not trying to, in, in this case of fading away, we're not trying to push away, nor are we trying to acquire anything, not even peace, not even the ease that I talked about. It's actually just allowing a natural process that would happen anyway uh, to unfold by not getting in the way of it through gripping onto things and being passionate. That's how we get in the way. 
So we're allowing something, a natural process to happen. So does this make sense? As you can see that there can be sort of a, yeah, I see some nods. Something can just fade out after we've seen clearly that it doesn't support the path. You know, the, the heart wants to walk the path. It's just not as interesting anymore. And the things that fade out might not even be unethical. You know, they might not even be uh, greed, hatred, and delusion particularly. They might just be kind of habitual things that we do that are getting in the way. Um, okay, so, so far I've talked about this in sort of an everyday sense of letting go of certain habits or behaviors, like the cooking thing. And this, by the way, is profound. I'm not at all... Um, diminishing it. This is um, an amazing way that we can continue to develop all through adulthood. It's not trivial at all. And sometimes it's quite amazing. You know, even after we've practiced for 20 or 30 years, we suddenly see a habit we've had for 50 years. And we say, whoa, why am I doing that? And, you know, we'll have this fading out process again. It's not like it's something you just do at the beginning of the path and then you've got all that worked out and it's only, you know, cushion work after that. It doesn't sound like that at all. So we have a lot of, let's call them macroscopic habits that are going to change all along the path. Um, but nonetheless, I would be remiss if I didn't also talk about the more specific meaning of viraga as a meditative experience. Know, is something that goes on uh, during meditation on the cushion. So you might recall from the teachings, or if not, now's a good time to learn, that there is a sequence that goes like this. Disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. And you may have sort of read this abstractly. They are nibbida, viraga, niroda, and nibbana, or sometimes it's vimuti which is liberation instead of the last one. So this is a stock phrase that's in many suttas. Uh, I just pulled this one out of the fire sermon, which is the third discourse that the Buddha taught. Seeing thus, the instructed noble disciple experiences disenchantment toward the eye, toward forms, toward eye consciousness, and there's several other things toward feeling tone. Experiencing disenchantment, she becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, her mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It's liberated. She understands destroyed is birth. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of being. So this is a classic declaration of complete freedom of our hanship. But it goes through disenchantment, dispassion, liberation and then the knowledge of liberation so this is a or the other um, one that i read was disenchantment dispassion cessation nibbana you'll read that one also so these are all just kind of words that we read the first time we we probably don't think about well let's see what experience exactly does that correspond to because in the mind we have a little block that says well i'm not an arahant and i'm not about to declare that so okay whatever these are some technical Buddhist terms that I don't need to think about. But um, we can at least notice first at the top level that viraga is part of a sequence that goes toward freedom. And I just said it was a natural process. So there's a natural sequence unfolding here that would happen if we let it. And this fading away is normal, natural, to be expected. 
So I'm going to say a bit more about this, and you might just listen with kind of a gentle, open mind. There's no need to grasp after understanding it cognitively. Um, just listen and let it land. And if it doesn't land, that's okay too. That's fine. I'm going to borrow a little bit in what I uh, say after this from another teacher named Rob Berbea um, from his excellent book, Seeing It Freeze. So here's a quote from that book. Um, a meditator practicing diligently will notice that often, though many through many of the insight ways of looking, the perception of phenomena will fade to some degree. This is a meditative experience. It may be a little, a lot, or completely, but even as attention is focused on an object, for example, a pain somewhere in the body or body sensations as a whole, when the view releases clinging enough, one way or another, the experience of that object under view begins to soften, blur, and fade. Have you ever experienced this? I've seen this with pain. So you look at pain, you know, you're, until you give a nice mindfulness instructions, just be mindful of the pain, just sit there, don't say pain, it's too abstract, okay, burning, pulling, stretching, you know, we're trying to find uh, actual experiences. But if we're able to look, and notice that it said when the view releases clinging sufficiently, so that's that equanimity, if you have enough of not being for or against the pain, you're not being mindful of the pain because you want it to go away <laughs> secretly. If I look at this, maybe it'll go away. Um, so if we release that, um, then we can have the experience of if you just look at the pain, you start to realize that it's not so clear exactly where it is. We know it's in the knee, sort of, but we go there. What's a knee anyway? It's just, you know, in, in awareness with our eyes closed, it's just some general region. And then we realize that, you know, it's, it's a little, not exactly clear where it is. Or maybe we say it's there, but then the next second it's over there, you know. And then if we keep looking, there's kind of this easing of it in a certain way. So um, if we keep looking or, or, you know, body sensations as a whole, many meditators have experienced that the boundaries of their body become blurred uh, when, they, when they get just a little bit of concentration and there starts to be a sort of less clear the shape of the body. Sometimes people panic at that idea. They, they realize, I don't know where my head is, you know, and, and they sort of jerk back. But this is um, what Rob Berbea is saying is very profound. He's saying, this is normal. If you look at things, they fade. Whoa. <laughs> so let's, let's, it's important to understand that this comes from how we are seeing. So he says, when we see with the insight way, so that means that we're, um, in that case, things will fade. So we don't make things fade. Um, we don't want them to fade. We don't not want them to fade. It's okay if they stay. Um, but if we look at them with a sense of, this means either um, impermanence, so allowing them to change freely or unsatisfactoriness, that develops dispassion, knowing that they're not going to do anything for us. We don't need to be for or against them. Or looking at them as empty, as not self, just a little blurring out any sense of my, but just letting them be conditions that are flowing uh, in the present moment. 
any of those insight ways of looking, if you keep looking, the object will fade. So um, when we just abide in our experience of it without passion, remember, dispassion, um, this is what will happen. So could it be that passion, whether desire or aversion, is part of maintaining an experience? Perception fades when we're not craving or clinging. So it's profound to realize that when we look at experience in this way, it can fade. Rebea calls it a radical discovery. So in his, this is another quote from the book. The experience, the perception of phenomena, depends on clinging. And it does. So... Here's an exercise to try if all of this is sounding a little bit abstract or you're worried that your meditation isn't dispassionate enough that you'll be able to see things fade. Next time you are bored, try to become less bored. It's actually difficult to increase boredom. Why is that? Because boredom is a particular mind state that depends on aversion for its maintenance. Um, and so if you want to be bored, you reduce aversion. With less aversion, boredom will fade a little bit. It's very interesting. I tried this. I don't get bored very often, but I found a moment when I was not feeling very interested in something and I needed to move on. And I tried it. And it does. It's true. If you actually try to make yourself less interested or less, less bored, or try to make yourself more bored or less interested in things, you reduce aversion, you reduce the aversion that's feeding the boredom of that. With less aversion, there's less clinging by definition because aversion is a form of clinging. Less clinging, less experience. Very interesting. So please observe this. Um, now, observing this in meditation does require a willingness for perception to fade. And that is where a lot of people um, don't, don't get to it right away. So we have to be willing for experience to get a little bit fuzzy or blurry or soft. And can you, first of all, can you do this and still be attentive? You know, it's easy if experience starts to fuzz out, but the mind also starts to fuzz out. And so then, and then we, you know, we have a hindrance going, we start having dullness or, or non-mindfulness, something else going on. And so then we're not able to have a subtle experience like dispassion happening. Um, and the other thing that happens, you know, either we become less attentive or we become fearful. We actually want experience. You know, if things start going away and it's not exactly clear what's going on and it's very subtle, the mind is like, ah, <laughs> you know, give me something to hold on to. <laughs> you know, I, and so the mind will grab something and that is what passion and then phenomena come back. So you'll have to do this a lot of times um, to really observe that when we are truly dispassionate, not clinging to or wanting, not wanting experience, it will fade out. It will become softer and lighter. You can come to appreciate that this is really nice, actually. Nothing's bothering you. Nothing is poking at you. <laughs> Nothing is weighing on your consciousness. It becomes... Um, I'm making light of it a little bit, but I'm doing that to make it sound more um, appealing. <laughs> um, so it's very interesting. So we learn, you know, we do, um, 
So I encourage you to explore this, you know, see if, if experience starts to fade, if you can just let it keep fading for a while. It may not. Remember, we don't want things to fade. If you want something to fade, then you've introduced what? Clinging, wanting. <laughs> so you can't want it to fade. You can't want it not to fade. Um, so just sit there. And if you're able to abide without a lot of uh, clinging to things, yeah, you can see the process just happen naturally for a while. And then the experience will come back. That's just how it is. Um, but to see, see if this is there. So we do learn, I want to circle back to um, a, a sort of a subtlety. Um, we learn that experience is impermanent. And many, I don't think anybody has any doubt that that's the case, right? Does anybody not think experience is, is impermanent? Okay, so, um, but we can sometimes get attached to the idea of impermanence and apply it. Um, just apply it onto things. So when things, things do arise and pass, but they don't arise and pass randomly, you know, because we don't have a lot of total control over things, we get the idea that, oh, I just sit here with awareness and stuff comes and goes into awareness. I don't have control over it. There's a sound, there's a body sensation. This is a nice way to practice. Um, it is a useful way to practice, but it's not actually the whole story is that things randomly pop in and out of consciousness and our job is just to kind of be there and let them come and go. That's the impermanence way of seeing things. But there, the Buddha identified a pathway by which things fade um, specifically. You know, they fade because of disenchantment and then dispassion and that leads to liberation. There's a pathway of dependent cessation that is not just random coming and going. It's something that will happen if we let it happen in the mind. So um, the, the Buddha discovered a particular pathway through the changing experience that we're in. The point is not to just sit there and experience and changing experiences coming and going, coming and going, and that's uh, and some, at some point the mind lets go. Of course it could, but this is a particular way that things can dependently let go. So please observe, reflect, and experiment. Don't take the, my word for it, and don't just think about it. Try practicing. Um, so this is an interesting and subtle aspect of practice. I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I, I wasn't totally sure about trying to explain it in an abstract way like this, but I hope I've pointed to enough specific experiences that you might try um, to, to, to start to see this rather profound effect um, that can change the way you experience the, um, uh, the kind of meditation you can get into when the mind is fairly settled. So don't be like the blind person, thinking that the aggregates are enjoyable and reliable. See them as they are, simply as conditioned things. And then with that, we don't need to be for or against them. And the experience of them can start to fade. Habits, going back to the macroscopic habits, as I said, habits that we have can suddenly um, simplify, can purify. Uh, you know, things that we're doing in our life, uh, we don't need to do all of them. Uh, and then in meditation, you might find yourself willing to discover this pathway 
disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, nibbana, or disenchantment, dispassion, liberation, knowledge of liberation, this particular channel that runs through experience where it's impermanent in a particular way and will eventually go away. So tonight we've talked about disenchantment and dispassion, nibida and viraga. If it wasn't of interest, um, don't worry about it then. You can just leave it here, let it go. It's no problem. Um, but I think it's important to touch on some of these kind of lesser known topics from time to time. This seemed like a nice opportunity. So I'll, I'll stop there and see if there are any questions or comments from the screen or the room. <laughs> it's very exciting to have a person here. Steve. I just want to appreciate all that went into that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. What parts in particular do you think landed for you for your uh, practice right now? The only part that didn't land was trying to become less bored. I can't wrap my head around that example. Everything else landed really well. Oh, sorry. You're supposed to try to make yourself more bored. More bored. That, okay. So I typed it wrong. That's, that makes sense. Got it. Yeah, if you try to make yourself more bored, it will be <laughs> difficult. Actually, you will actually become less bored. Yes. Probably. I, I typed it wrong. Thank you. <laughs> you have to choose um, particular ones. I chose boredom partly because Robert Bea gives that example. But when I thought through it, I understood that um, uh, boredom is a particular state that always is there because of aversion. If you try to choose something like pain, um, you know, try to make it more painful. You actually can make pain more painful sometimes. And that's because pain intriguingly relies not only on aversion, but sometimes on desire for its presence. And so in that case, um, uh, you can actually increase pain by looking at it and by trying to increase it. And yeah, but boredom in particular is one that is really, I think, only aversive. Oh, okay, yes. Um, next time somebody speaks, I'm going to turn you up louder or repeat the question because it wasn't loud enough for the person here. So, yeah. Other comments or questions? Sandy. Um, I was kind of uh, caught up with your image, not your image, I was making the image, but your description of the difference between sitting and observing just phenomena arising and passing away in this sort of steady state fashion versus the idea of observing them with with, with an eventual tendency of things kind of fading away, even though you're 
being attentive and paying attention to that. Um, that I, I I don't know that that uh, that that tweaked my my physics bone for some reason, but it it seemed like a very interesting and in some ways kind of profound difference in terms of how you look at the meditative experience. Could you say anything about that? Yeah, it is a it is a profound difference. It's not that one is um, better than the other. I want to say that clearly. It's just a different approach. Um, it's just that there are some hidden, um, I guess what I was trying to reveal, and maybe not as clearly as I could have, is that there are some hidden views in place um, around our ways of looking at things, even insight ways of looking at things. And so when we say rest in receptive awareness and let things come and go in and out, um, that relies on, an, on a little bit of an unseen assumption that we can be a neutral observer and, um, and we don't have any participation in what comes and goes. Um, the understanding of the mind offered in Buddhism suggests that this isn't actually the case, is that we do have something to do with things, with what comes and goes, even if it's not uh, controllable by our will, um, which it isn't. So it's fine to sit and rest in an open awareness and, and uh, you know, be dispassionate about what comes and goes. And then we're observing through the lens of a Nietzsche, and that can be liberating. You know, the heart learns that it, there's no point in clinging to stuff that's just coming and going. Why, why would it try to grab onto that? So there's a, an important learning going on, and there is a pathway through that to letting go completely to liberation. This is a different lens that we put on, more of a dependent arising kind of lens or emptiness lens um, that doesn't make the assumption that um, we can be that neutral observer. It actually includes the idea that uh, we are participating in experience and that if we have dispassion toward experience, we can find a little channel through it where uh, in, if we're uh, in contact with it in just the right way, we will actually create less and less of that experience. So we find the particular uh, place where our attention lines up with our volition and it lines up with what we are volitionally producing at that moment, even if it's subconscious in a sense, and we allow that activity to fade out. Is, is that sort of getting to your, one of your themes of questioning absolute reality in a sense? Well, um, what we would question is our belief in absolute reality. Um, and I don't think we need to have a philosophical stance in order to do these meditations. Um, they just, they come from different views. It's not wrong that we have a view when we meditate. We, we do. As long as it's one of the set that's called right view, and there are a number of them, it's fine. It'll work. Um, and in the end, what we discover is that there isn't an absolute right view, but we use one of the right ways of viewing along the way in order to understand that. But we don't need to work that out philosophically. It's not, uh, it's not necessary. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah, please. I'll repeat it. I don't think you're going to be able to speak loud enough. For... Yeah. The progression of seeing, staying with something, and so creating a reversion is the perception fading. Uh -huh. For me, um, I was thinking in moments of having blame for something outside. And then locating the pain, like drawing into the pain inside, like I think of it located in my heart. And then um, that being in that place, uh, it kind of solidified judgments or blame just kind of dissolve. And it's like, oh, we don't even. They lose their, uh -huh. their substance. That's, that's kind of what I was talking about. Okay. So um, Zada has offered a reflection that for him, when he thinks about seeing and then um, seeing clearly and having perception fade, it reminds him of the times when he has had blame for something outside. And that comes with maybe a feeling of pain in the heart. And then as there's the clear seeing about what's going on there, there's an, a fading of that uh, internal experience. Did I capture that relatively correctly? Um, like the seeing clearly is actually turning towards the pain itself. Okay. And, that's, uh, and that movement, what seems solid, which is a view, the view that seems solid, just kind of results. Okay. So the, yeah, the turning toward the pain is a turning inward. And then what seemed solid, which was a view about this situation, uh, will naturally dissolve. Yeah, I think that's a nice example of an everyday example of um, disenchantment. Well, not only every, it's, it's an everyday life external situation being brought to the inner experience of it. And, um, seeing that's that seeing through that disenchantment leading to some fading of the pain in the moment um, and then maybe over time there would be also if you do this multiple times a fading away of the tendency to blame because you know already that it's going to lead to this inner pain um, and so there would be less interest in the heart in engaging in that pattern in the first place so that itself would fade. Does that make sense as a sort of a longer scale fading as well as the immediate fading? That's a nice example, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, I see that we're four minutes past. So one person has already dropped off, but thanks for staying this long. And um, great, this was kind of fun. So we'll, um, We'll continue next month. Be well, everyone. Take Thank care. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> Bye. Feel free to unmute. Say Thank goodbye. Nice, nice to be here. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you, Kim.